now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode one of our human trafficking research season, Just Science sat down with Dr. Rebecca Pfeffer and Dr. Kelly Barrick, both research criminologists at RTI International, to discuss how human trafficking researchers use creative statistical approaches from other scientific disciplines to paint a comprehensive and meaningful picture of human trafficking prevalence across various communities. The scope of human trafficking is often over or underestimated by the public, which can have deleterious effects on resource allocation and intervention strategy. Currently, researchers are employing quantitative methods to calculate accurate estimations of human trafficking prevalence, as well as qualitative methods to better understand the depth of survivor experience. Listen along as Dr. Pfeffer and Dr. Barrick discuss their ongoing projects, the importance of a holistic approach to research, and how to estimate prevalence of human trafficking more accurately. This episode of Just Science is funded by RTI International's Justice Practice Area. Here's your host, Jacqueline Kolnick. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kolnick. On today's episode, we will discuss human trafficking and more specifically, human trafficking prevalence in the United States. Here to discuss this are doctors Rebecca Pfeffer and Kelly Barrick. Welcome, Rebecca and Kelly. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Same. Thank you. Well, to get us started, I would love to learn a little bit more about you both. So can you tell me a little bit about yourselves, who you are, and what you do? Sure. I'm Kelly Barrick. I'm a senior research criminologist in RTI's justice practice area. I've conducted mixed methods research and evaluation on crime victimization and the criminal legal response for the past 20 years. Um, But most of my current research is focused on improving our understanding of and response to both sex and labor trafficking. And I'm Rebecca Pfeffer. I'm also a senior research criminologist in the justice practice area, like Kelly. And I have been doing human trafficking research for over a decade. I started out doing a lot of work around the law enforcement response to human trafficking and have expanded to be doing some research that focuses more on how to identify uh, victims and survivors in different ways. Um, And that's where my work and Kelly's has really begun to intersect. Well, it's so lovely to hear more about your backgrounds and all that has brought you to today in this conversation. I think a really helpful thing that could help ground our listeners is to define what trafficking is. So can one of you define uh, what trafficking is? Sure, that's a really helpful place to start. So human trafficking is when a person is compelled to work under conditions of either force, fraud, or coercion. And there are a lot of different ways that this can happen or ways that that can look in the United States and elsewhere. Sometimes people find it helpful to distinguish between sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Sex trafficking involves commercial sexual activity under conditions of force, fraud, or coercion, while labor trafficking is exploitation that happens in any number of industry sectors, such as construction, hospitality, or agriculture. But it can also happen outside of recognized industry sectors So occurrences like forced begging or forced criminality are also considered labor trafficking. That's a really helpful and expansive definition that you gave us, Rebecca. Thanks for that. Um, It sounds also like it touches a lot of different areas and sectors. So Kelly, I'd love to ask you, how common is human trafficking? Like, What do we know about the prevalence of this type of victimization? 
Well, this may be disappointing, but we don't really know. It's commonly understood that human trafficking is a widespread problem, but the variation in global estimates has been extreme. So in the past 10 years, we've seen global estimates ranging from about 20 million to 50 million people worldwide. Um, this wide variation in estimates has led some people to argue that these claims about human trafficking being widespread are unsubstantiated. And there is a growing recognition that it's necessary to improve the methods used to generate prevalence estimates so they can be more precise and reliable. And there are a number of ongoing projects uh, seeking to do that. So it's unfortunate that we don't have you know, precise numbers on the scale of human trafficking, but it's important for a couple reasons. Stakeholders that are involved in anti-trafficking efforts, such as policymakers, service providers, healthcare providers, law enforcement, and other courtroom actors, need data to inform their responses to trafficking within their jurisdictions. Without empirical data, efforts to disrupt trafficking or meet the needs of its survivors will be driven by public opinion is often either sensationalizing or disregarding, which can result in either too little intervention or too much. So reliable prevalence estimates can be used to inform the development of adequate and strategic responses to trafficking that are aligned with the scope of the problem. Reliable estimates can also help inform the appropriate allocation of resources. If this is a big problem, we need more resources. If it's a small problem, maybe we don't need as many. Sounds like such important and foundational work that needs to happen in order for us to really understand how to address the issue. Rebecca, I'm curious to hear from you. Are there limits to what we can learn from a prevalence estimate? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So like Kelly was saying, estimating the prevalence of trafficking can be important in understanding how large a response to trafficking may need to be. And to make sure that, you know, for example, anti-trafficking communities have the capacity that they need to respond and to determine the amount of money and the, the level of funding they may need to provide for people who have experienced trafficking within their communities. But the estimate of prevalence alone doesn't provide any information about the actual context of the trafficking. So you have a prevalence estimate, but it doesn't tell you what type of exploitation people have experienced how it occurred, how they were recruited, what those recruitment networks look like, what individual vulnerabilities were, what people need in order to exit trafficking situations, and what their experiences with law enforcement and service providers have been. All of those issues are really important to determine the best type of response to human trafficking within individual communities, and it may be different in one community from another. So prevalence estimates tell us so much, but there's so much else that we need to know about the context of trafficking to respond appropriately. Well, this is such important work, the prevalence estimation, to help us understand, like you're saying, the scope of an issue. And then there's there's so much else to be done, and, and that's part of what I'm excited about this podcast series and that will cover some of those additional ways that research can inform what individuals need or understand more about their experiences. But from our conversation today, it's so important and seems foundational for us to establish a prevalent estimate for trafficking. And so I know that you two are have really been foundational in that work, that you've been at the forefront of this. And so how do you all measure the prevalence of human trafficking? 
Sure. So we actually just completed a study focused on estimating the prevalence of sex trafficking in Sacramento County, California. And for that study, we were able to obtain existing data from nine agencies and organizations that included those focusing on criminal justice, uh, community service provision, healthcare, child welfare, and other groups that serve trafficking victims in the county. These agencies essentially provided lists of individuals who they had identified as a trafficking victim between 2015 and 2020. Maintaining the confidentiality of individuals on these lists is obviously paramount. So rather than requesting or collecting any personally identifiable information about sex trafficking victims, such as you know, names and social security numbers, Instead, we asked the agencies to provide a list of victims using meta attributes so we could create a unique identifier instead of providing their full names or other identifying details. We then used a technique that's known as mark recapture or multiple systems estimation to generate the prevalence estimate uh, using these lists of identified victims. These methods uh, were not created for estimating uh, the prevalence of human trafficking, but actually arose from work in ecology, where animals were captured, tagged, and recaptured in order to estimate the total population size. Rebecca, do you want to jump in with an example of that? Sure. So, for example, if you wanted to know how many fish were in a pond, you wouldn't necessarily try to catch every single fish in the pond, but you could estimate how many there were by catching a fish and marking it and throwing it back in and then catching another fish and marking it and throwing it back in. And you would keep track of the number of marked fish that you were finding and the number of unmarked fish that you were finding to figure out how many fish were in the pond. So if you keep catching marked fish, um, you would know that there aren't that many fish in the pond. But if you keep throwing marked fish back and catching unmarked fish, you would know there seem to be a lot more fish in here than we thought. And that's sort of the approach that we took. So we had these agencies provide us with their lists of known trafficking victims. And then we analyzed those lists to see how often individuals showed up on more than one list. And there are statistical models that use the overlap of individuals that appear on one or more lists to estimate the total size of the population. You mentioned meta attributes. Can you explain what meta attributes are? So by meta attributes, we mean we took information that is unique to individuals, but isn't by itself uh, personally identifiable. So something like, you know, the first letter of your first name and the last letter of your first name and one or two digits from a person's birth date can help us identify matches across administrative lists without needing to receive anybody's full name or full birth date or any identifying information about people. In that way, we were able to um, work with agencies to give us their lists, you know, because they believed in the importance of this work, but also, of course, want to protect their clients. And so do we. Um, And that was a way that we were able to work with agencies to obtain these lists and be able to do this analysis. Something that you mentioned here was getting different types of agencies and organizations. So you mentioned criminal justice, service providers, healthcare, child welfare. Why is it important to include lists from multiple organizations like that? That's a great question, Jacqueline. And the answer is that different people come to the attention of different agencies and organizations. You know, there's no reason to think that law enforcement would come in contact with every single trafficking victim in a county. And there's no reason to think that any one community 
service provider would come into contact with all victims. So we know that people touch various service points within the community. Our objective was really to see, is it the same people that are touching all of these different places or are different people touching different places? And we work from the assumption that different organizations will touch different people. And so it's so important to get that data from a variety of sources and then like you've done to identify those duplicates to ultimately get at that number. So I would love to hear you use this approach, you implemented it. What happened? What did you learn about the prevalence of of human trafficking? So using this approach, we estimated that around 13,000 minors and adults were trafficked for sex in Sacramento County at some point between 2015 and 2020. However, I don't like putting that number out there without a lot of caveats around what this actually means. So it does not mean that 13,000 individuals are currently being victimized, only that they were victimized at some point over the six-year data collection period. And it's important to note that the length of time that victims were trafficked varies a lot. So some individuals may have been trafficked for a day or two during this period and others for the entire six-year data collection period. Because of that variation in the length of trafficking exploitation, we can't use this estimate to estimate the number of victims there are in a single day or a year or at at any given time. We just know the number over that six-year period. Although prevalence was a key part of the study, um, it was not the only component. I think um, Rebecca can talk a little bit about what else we did in this study. So in addition to trying to estimate the scope of sex trafficking in Sacramento County, We also wanted to understand what that exploitation was like for those people with lived experience. And to do that, we also conducted 159 semi-structured interviews with people with lived experience in commercial sex who had either worked under a pimp or trafficker or who identified as having been trafficked. And these interviews supplemented what we learned from the prevalence estimate to provide a broader understanding of the nature of exploitation and the experiences of survivors, including who they are, the communities that they represent, the types of exploitation they endured, how they were recruited or entered into commercial sex, the social networks of their traffickers, their relationships with other victims, how they exited the life or left their traffickers, their encounters with law enforcement, barriers and pathways to services, and more. And although the prevalence estimate that we generated for this project gets the most attention, this contextual information that we learned from these interviews was really critical in developing actionable recommendations to inform a response to trafficking that is coordinated and, you know, survivor-informed. Well, it sounds like your study really had that deep understanding of the context of the community in which you were trying to estimate prevalence. I'm curious, do you have any other examples beyond the Sacramento sex trafficking project that emphasizes that need to take in community context? Yeah, we are um, actually currently conducting a study to better understand the prevalence of labor trafficking and exploitation among construction workers in Houston. So a very different population and community than what we did in, in Sacramento. Before kind of jumping into the details of that study, I think it's important to stress just in general, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to estimating prevalence. For example, the administrative data that we were able to get in Sacramento is not always available or of sufficient quality. And so there's other methods of estimating prevalence that don't use administrative data, but rather collect new data. And that typically involves conducting surveys or interviews with individuals who are at risk for trafficking. 
There are a lot of different strategies that can be used to identify and recruit at-risk individuals to participate in a survey or interview. And identifying the best approach, as you've hinted at, Jacqueline, depends largely on the population and community that you're interested in. For example, the best strategy for recruiting migrant farm workers in a rural area is probably not going to work to recruit individuals trafficked for commercial sex in an urban area. And we're not going to go into detail on all those different options and methods, but Rebecca can talk a little bit through a study that we're currently conducting to estimate the prevalence of labor trafficking among construction workers in Houston. The overarching goal of that study is actually to advance knowledge of promising methods for estimating prevalence in addition to generating the estimate itself. Rebecca, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? To better understand the strengths and weaknesses of different approaches, we're actually just comparing two different sampling strategies to see how they compare and how the experiences and the estimates that they generate compare. So we're using two separate strategies to recruit construction workers to participate in a survey about their work experiences. One approach is using publicly available data on construction site permits. So we're requesting construction site permits from the city, and then we're sending field staff out to a random subset of the sites on that list and having the field staff approach workers to invite them to take the survey. And then the other approach that we're using is respondent-driven sampling, where we're having some of the workers who are recruited at construction sites invite their peers to take the survey. So we are doing some direct recruitment, and then we're comparing that to having respondents generate the survey sample themselves. And they're really different approaches, but the survey itself is the same. The survey itself includes a series of questions about various forms of abuse or mistreatment that a person may have experienced while working in construction. And then we're going to use those questions to determine how many construction workers have experienced labor trafficking. So we can use statistical modeling on the back end to estimate the percentage of workers who are trafficked, as well as to generate an estimate of the total number of trafficked construction workers in Houston. So we've started this data collection. It's ongoing right now and will take about a year to complete. That's so exciting. And it's really innovative to do two different approaches and to learn about how those different ways of trying to identify individuals, what's the impact of that on on what we learn about them and what they represent. So I'm really excited. Maybe in a future episode, we'll have to have you back and talk more about what you learned from this study. I also think, you know, not only is this work so important, but as you describe what you're doing and how you're doing it, It sounds extremely challenging as well. So I'd love to hear from you all. What do you think has gone really well? What has contributed to just your ability to do this work that is very challenging and thorough and involves data collection from so many different sources and really approaching a very ill-defined thing to try and define and, and capture knowledge about a group that we don't know a lot about? Yeah, it is um, incredibly challenging. And I think one of the things that helped make the Sacramento study successful was our team. And I think our team is unique in some ways uh, than other research studies. For one, the effort was actually led by a Sacramento nonprofit called Community Against Sexual Harm, also known as CASH. And then it was supported by research partners, both 
Rebecca and I here at RTI and and a full team of researchers here and a local data department, the Institute for Social Research at Sacramento State University. Our team also included survivor leaders who were actively engaged throughout the study. And not all research on trafficking, whether it's on prevalence or not, engages both practitioners and survivors throughout the study. Having the study led by CASH, which is a local champion, uh, was critical to the success because this type of research requires a really deep understanding of the local context. It requires connections with relevant stakeholders in order to get really sensitive data and the passion and desire of someone locally to actually see the study through. And I don't think we can overstate how critical CASH's leadership was to being able to obtain the administrative data that was needed for the prevalence estimate and to conduct over 150 interviews with victims and survivors. Additionally, CASH convened and facilitated a monthly survivor advisory council, which was composed of nine members with lived experience with human trafficking who provided expert guidance on the research project from beginning to end. They were involved from the very beginning of this project through the finish line. So they guided the overall research direction at the beginning. They were critical to this project's success. They helped us narrow down key areas to consider for the interviews, helped us figure out how to ask questions the best way. They provided expert review and feedback on our all of our instruments, our recruitment protocols, um, the compensation structure for participants, They served as interviewers in the study and then provided input on some of our findings and generated recommendations for the final report. This project would never have been nearly as successful or we never would have learned as much as we learned without this Survivor Advisory Council. I don't know if I can speak for Kelly, but I think I can. This changed the way I think about how we conduct research. I mean, it was just made the project a thousand times better. I think that's so important to emphasize is the ways in which those with lived experience, right, being from start to finish through the research involved in all of the pieces and components, not only strengthened your study, but also just rooted it and grounded it in the lived experiences that individuals have. And I think that is just such an exciting part of this study. It's so important for us to be talking about. And in this series, I will have another podcast that talks specifically more about participatory action research, which is an approach that individuals can take to make sure that the research is grounded and rooted in the communities that it's meant to impact or inform. So I think between CASH and that uh, Survivor Advisory Council, it's just a, a really important effort that you went on this project for a while now, we've we've been mentioning challenges here and there, or kind of alluding that that not everything goes smoothly in research. Shocker! So I'd love to hear from you all. What were some challenges that came up throughout the project? As I think we have, we've definitely hinted on already. Securing the administrative data we needed for the prevalence estimate was incredibly time consuming. We did approach 14 agencies in total and asked them if they were would be able to contribute study. And in the end, we got nine who provided lists of the unique identifiers of the trafficking victims that they had served. And as we mentioned before, the nature of the data we are asking for understandably raised concerns. And, you know, we wanted to do everything we could to protect the identity of the victims while still being able to use the data to generate the prevalence estimate. And as I mentioned before, without cash, 
who's a trusted and known leader in the anti-trafficking community, it's unlikely that we would have been able to get data from those nine sources in order to generate the estimate. Another challenge that we had was just taking care of everyone who was working on this project, from those who are conducting the interviews to those who are reading and coding the transcripts. We asked really difficult questions and covered really difficult topic areas, and we needed to remain sensitive to the possibility of vicarious trauma for everyone who was interfacing with this difficult material. And sometimes we were learning those lessons in retrospect instead of being proactive, and we had to work hard to look forward and think about ways to ensure that the project team members had the time that they needed and that we had the processes in place to ensure that people could opt out of work if they wanted to, or have a way to hand things off if it became difficult. So that was a really big learning opportunity for us as project leaders and something that was definitely um, a big challenge for this project. And I'm sure you all are not alone. I know in my own work and body of research, I have also learned that lesson in retrospect. And I think it's a place for our field to continue to grow and learn more about is how we can better support all people engaged in our research projects, sometimes who are not researchers, sometimes who haven't ever worked in a space that has, you know, exposure to traumatic content through our professional spaces. So I appreciate you raising those challenges and sharing about them and also being honest and transparent about how sometimes we learn in retrospect things that we now can implement in future projects in in our work. So I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that. Let's say that people want to learn more about this work and what you all are up to. Where can they go to find that? Well, one place is in the Journal of Human Trafficking. We recently published an article on prevalence estimation methods. Um, The article is called Advances in Measurement, a Scoping Review of Prior Human Trafficking Prevalence Studies and Recommendations for Future Research. And it's available via open access. So you don't need any journal subscription to be able to view the article in full. Yeah, so we also have some reports available for download on the Sacramento sex trafficking study on our project's webpage. Um, The reports include our final report that has all of our key findings with prevalence and findings that came out of our interviews. There's a brief report providing recommendations for anyone thinking about maybe trying to replicate this type of study and a brief we co-authored with members of the Survivor Advisory Council. If you Google estimating sex trafficking in Sacramento, our website should be the first result. And so hopefully you can find it there. In addition to those um, reports that were specific to the project, we also participated in a webinar for the Center for Victim Research with our community partner, the executive director of CASH, to discuss the benefits and some of the challenges of the researcher-practitioner partnership that was foundational to this project's success. And and a, a link to that recording is also available on our project website. Additionally, on the RTI website, we have more information about our study on the prevalence of labor trafficking among construction workers under an impact page for the Human Trafficking Policy and Research Analysis Project. Awesome. Thank you so much for those resources. I'm sure people will be excited to explore them. As we close out our time together, is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with today? I think our main message is that understanding prevalence can be helpful for some things, but estimating the scope of human trafficking is sort of an empty exercise if you don't also seek to understand the nature and context of the lived experience of these people. So understanding the size of the problem means so much more when you also understand the nature of the problem, how it happens, what happens, and how we might be able to prevent it in the future. What a poignant statement to end on today. 
Rebecca and Kelly, it's been a pleasure discussing your important and impactful work on trafficking today. Thank you for your time um, to chat with me about this very interesting topic, and I'm excited to hear where your work goes in the future. Thanks for having us. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Jacqueline. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and additional resources, you can find the link on the landing page for this episode. I'm Jacqueline Kolnick, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science sits down with Stacey Cutbush Starseed to discuss outcomes for human trafficking survivors. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 